welcome to you at the beginning of this day of worship. It's good to see visitors and it's good to see old friends uh, coming amongst us again. We pray that whether you're listening online or you're with us here physically in the chapel, that we we will be united in our worship this morning and that that God will bless us. There's just one um, notice and that is that the prayer meeting this week will not be live streamed. Will not be live streamed. We've come to the end of another year. This is the last Sunday that we shall be worshipping in this place. And there's a variety of feelings, I'm sure, as we look back over this year. Uh, but I want to just focus on one And that is a spirit of thankfulness that the gospel has been proclaimed throughout this year. We are very thankful to have ministers, John and Mark, to minister the gospel to us week by week. It's a great privilege that we have here. God has helped them. God has supported them through very difficult times. It's no small thing to get up before the same people week after week and to preach the gospel. But by God's help, that has been possible. And Mark has been able to increase his responsibilities. We're very thankful. We're thankful also for the help that has been given in teaching in Sunday school and in Bible classes in various ways help has been given so it is full of thankfulness for all those blessings to us during this year there's another side to thankfulness in a way We've heard the gospel week by week. We have been blessed. But we need to think about how that has affected us, our life. The author to Hebrews uses a short sentence from one of the Psalms. He says, today, if you will hear my voice, harden not your heart as in the rebellion. Today, there's an urgency. Today, we are blessed to hear the gospel. What effect is that having upon our spiritual heart? Is it hardening us? Was it softening us? What effect is the gospel that we've heard here throughout this year having an effect on our lives, how we conduct ourselves? Is there that softening, repentant spirit given? Well, shall we turn to our, our first song, Look to the Skies? There's a celebration. Lift up your heads. Join the angel song. 
For our creator became, comes our saviour as a baby is born. from the Gospel of Matthew, the second chapter. You can find that on page 807 if you're following in in your Bibles. And we're picking up the story here from um, the wise men's point of view and the journey that they're making to find the promised um, child. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews. For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, 
and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring bring me word to me that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed by their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfil what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and he lived in a city called Nazareth. So that was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Amen. Let's join together to sing O Little Town of Bethlehem. And following this, the children's talk, if you'd like to come up to the front, if you're visiting as well, we're very pleased to see you. O Little Town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie.
Oh, Tom, you come down. That's good. You can go in that little gap in there if you want to. Yeah. There's a gap. What do you find there? That's good. Good, well nice to see you all on this Christmas time and obviously some of you extras here, it's really nice that you're down the front as well and I've got, um, help of my wife, I've got two two presents to show you, it's been a time of presents isn't it and I've got uh, two presents to show you and I wonder which one you'd most like to open. Okay, which one? All right, got some, let's have some votes for this gold one then. Who would most like to open the gold one? And who would be rather keen on this scruffy red one? A couple of people would. Okay, but this, this does look rather nice, doesn't it? Gold, a gold present. Would somebody want to see what's inside that? Yeah? Why don't you two between you open it up? See if you can open it between you, help each other. It's a lovely gold, shiny, big present, isn't it? Wonder what's inside. Yeah. I think we must use the same cellar tape as we used the other days. <laughs> right, and have a look inside there. What's inside there then? Okay. So do you open it up? What do you reckon is inside there? Yeah. Bin stuff, exactly. Bin stuff. So nice on the outside. Really grubby inside. Not very nice inside. And you know there's a Bible verse that tells us a bit about the same thing. As things looking nice on the outside but not in the inside. I wonder if somebody can read this out to me. There we go, Flynn. Can you read it? Thank you. People look at the outside of a person, but the Lord looks at the heart. So, it may be that you are, or people are looking really nice. Maybe they've got some new Christmas clothes on. Maybe they're good-looking people. Maybe they can speak very nicely. Maybe they're coming to church and looking really good. And yet, God can see inside and maybe it's not all so good inside. What's written on this one inside? Can you see any of the words if I can? Somebody else read down the words on the inside of this. Yeah, do you want to do that, Jess? So a whole host of bad things, even though it's so shiny on the outside. Bad things inside. And the Lord can see beyond what might look nice on the outside. And he sees what's going on in our heart. And sometimes it's not nice. Well, we remember our Bible verse. And it makes us wonder, this grubby present with really poorly put together, not particularly nice paper and all split, it's not very nice on the outside, but I'm wondering what's on the inside. Are you wondering what's on the inside? Right, let's have somebody else who hasn't done a... Said, Katie, your hand was up quick. Okay. Oh, wow. 
Probably not on the outside, but that's a nice box. Perhaps Oscar can help you open the box. Have I got that right? Who's, 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 who's that? And yeah, pick up high, put it above your head so people can see. They take take them out. Take the yeah. Okay. Yes. Oh yes. Right. I'll have that. I'll have it for a minute just to show. Thank you. So grubby on the outside. Yeah, that's right. Thank you for that. Grubby on the outside, but inside. Look at this. Golden chocolate coins. That's good, isn't it? And sometimes you know it can be like that. The Lord looks on the inside. And sometimes people might not have such really nice clothes and other people might not think they're really good looking and perhaps they're not very good at saying things and they don't make lots of friends. But inside are good things. So let's have a look see what's inside here. Inside this box there's some other words. Right, who doesn't mind reading down that list? Yeah, go on then, Florence. Wanting others to have the best, kind, loving, patient, humble, gentle, loving Jesus. Okay, what a good list there is there on the inside of that badly wrapped thing. So, people look on the outside of a person, but God looks at the heart. It's a really important lesson to know and to think about, and it makes me think, hmm, one we probably need to ask God to forgive us. Because although sometimes we look all right on the outside, there's some pretty bad things going on in our hearts. And we need God to forgive us all of those things and for Jesus to take them away on the cross. But the other thing is it makes me think it's good to pray that even if we don't feel we look very special on the outside, to pray that God would help us to have these sorts of things going on in our hearts. So we look at the outside appearance, God looks at the heart. Okay, thank you for Oh and is there enough of these to go round? Who wants to hand them round? Do you wanna just pass them round let everyone take one? Yeah. So pass a bundle to somebody else so we can get them going. Obviously enjoys distribution. That's good. I hope we've got enough for them all. If you do get missed out, I think there's some more somewhere else over Chapel House, but make sure you get one afterwards. All right, when you get your coin, you can head back. Thank you for coming out. nice lot of you this morning, so might have to give a couple more later on afterwards. What about the river? You all got one? And it's over there as well, Joe. How are we doing? How about, Kim, if you give those two to those two, and I'll give you a double afterwards, because you've been a helper.
Almighty and ever gracious God, we do desire that we may be united in our praying here this morning, that your Holy Spirit may teach us what we should pray for, how to pray, and that, O Lord, we may be blessed together. We are thankful that we have freedom still in this land to worship in this way. We are thankful, O Lord, that we have your servant, uh, John, to proclaim the word to us, to teach us from your word. And we pray, O Lord, that we may be eager hearers. Not only hearing, but also may we put into practice what we hear. That it may not just go into one ear, as it were, and out the other, and take no effect upon us. O Lord, do God that the word that is sown here this morning, and week by week, may implant in our hearts, affect our lives, what we say, what we do, how we behave. O Lord, we've been thinking with the children um, about our inner hearts, what we're like inside. O Lord, we pray that we might each one have that heart which has a desire to serve God, to love God, to follow God, that we might, O Lord, have a heart that is softened by the word as we hear, as we read it, that we may, O Lord, be given that spirit to seek first with urgency and earnestness after God. O Lord, we pray that you will indeed come and bless us. As we look back over the year, we have indeed so many blessings to thank you for. Yes, there have been times of anxiety, there have been times of stress, times of worry, and in some instances, times of deep, deep, sadness. O Lord, we pray that you will comfort those in their sadness. Draw near to them and bless them at this time. And we give thanks, O Lord, that in all these things you are our God, our sovereign God, one over all. You know all about us. You care for us. You love us. You watch over us. We give thanks, O Lord. And we pray, O Lord, that we may grow in grace. 
that we may be more like our Lord and Saviour day by day. That there may be that desire to walk with our God. Oh Lord, you know about each one who has come through these doors this morning, what they are like, where they are in their lives, in their spiritual lives. And we ask, O Lord, that your Holy Spirit may be at work to make alive to spiritual things. Save us, O Lord, from half-heartedness Save us, O Lord, from lukewarmness. O Lord, we pray that you will bless the work in our Sunday school, in our mums and toddlers group, first Tuesday. Pray, O Lord, that you will equip and enable those to get alongside people who come in through our doors the needy. May we be given words to speak, which are wise words, words of comfort, words of, uh, to help them. Oh Lord, we pray that there may be in this town and surrounding areas a great desire to seek after God. Oh Lord, this is what we want as a nation as well, that, oh Lord, at this time many may be brought to inquire as to why this uh, we are prolonging into this vaccination and what its effects are going to have on our nation. Oh Lord, if it could please you that they might begin to realise and understand that there is a sovereign God who is directing and all events are under your control. Do give wisdom, O Lord, to our leaders in this country. O Lord, we pray that instead of relying on their own wisdom, and their own authority that they might be brought to seek for wisdom from God. That they may realise that their own wisdom is paltry, insignificant. That you will turn the hearts of our leaders to seek after God. Oh Lord, that is a big ask. But we ask for faith to believe that nothing is too hard for you. We have instances in your word where you turned hard, rebellious men to God. And you are the same God today and you can turn the hearts of those who are rebelling, have no knowledge or very little knowledge of God and do not 
really want to know anything to do with God, oh Lord, you can turn them and we pray that they may be turned to you. We ask, O Lord, for your blessing upon John as he ministers, brings the word to us now. May we, O Lord, be prayerful in our hearing. May, O Lord, this day, souls be changed. Holy Spirit working in the hearts of all who hear. Forgive us, O Lord, for our many sins. Where I have asked amiss, O Lord, forgive. And in mercy, look upon each one of us and cleanse us, we pray. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, before John brings the word of God to us, we're going to sing again. There was no room in Bethlehem.
Saviour and Herod? Well, Herod was uh, a much disliked figure at uh, Christmas, and for good reasons. He doesn't feature quite as much as the wise men and the shepherds in nativities, but he's often there to some degree. But he doesn't feature as big as them because his actions in the Bible accounts are so deplorable and horrible. But most people do know to some extent of Herod. However, the Herod of the nativity isn't the only Herod in the Bible. The Herods are a family line. People in Israel who had a position and wielded at least some authority. Uh, they had dealings with Jesus and with his followers at different points. And this morning, I'm thinking of tracing through that connection between Jesus and the Herods, plural. I was nudged on to this by an Advent book I've been reading by Sinclair Ferguson and one of the chapters started to point me in this direction. So some of you may have come across that and I've enjoyed exploring that, thinking through that this last week or so. So while some of the students and young people have had their history books shut and pushed to one side, I've had my history books open and I've been trying to get into them and understand them. But chiefly, of course, I've been going back to the Bible and seeing what the Bible has to say about the Saviour and the Herods. And maybe it starts to get you thinking, what Herods are there in the Bible? And maybe you sometimes find yourself a bit confused because you read of Herod and then you read later of another Herod. You think, well, is that Herod, that Herod? And then you read perhaps of another Herod. You think, well, is this the same Herod or not? Who are these Herods? Well, there are especially three Herods featured in the Bible. Some others are mentioned. I will just make many references beyond, but I don't want to confuse you, confuse us this morning. I find it enough to be thinking of the three main Herods. And they come from three different generations. So you've got the granddad, the son, and then a grandson, but actually of a different line. You've got the granddad, a son, and then a grandson of the different line. And although there are three different Herods, three different generations of Herods, often in different places, there is actually a theme that links them together. It's quite a sobering theme, but in a way it's also an encouraging theme. So I hope it will encourage our hearts as well this morning. And you could summarise um, that theme, if you like, in, if I can put it in little ways, devastating yet defeated, fierce yet failing, how about this one, vain in terms of glory, vain, vain yet in vain. This is the theme that we'll pick up as we go through. Got four photos uh, for this morning on my PowerPoint and we will home in on those photos as we go through that might help link some of these things together as we look at the Bible's teaching on the Saviour and the Herods. Devastating yet defeated, fierce yet failing, vain yet in vain. Okay, our first one, well, 
I think we're on familiar territory here. Herod the Great. Herod the Great. So he's the, the best known Herod. He had a dad, Herod Antipater, who started the whole dynasty. But then we come to Herod the Great, and he lived in the, the last decade, if you like, BC. He was a great builder. He was a great builder. He's left his mark. In fact, here if I if it works, there is a picture taken when we were on Masada. Maybe you've heard of Masada. There's a big palace down in the south of sort of Israel area, down in the dry land. Masada became uh, a famous place of resistance in the, the early centuries. Maybe you've seen a film on it. Masada that was built by Herod the Great, as was Herod's palace. Remember that, and also. A reconstruction of the temple, Herod's temple. So this man was a builder, but he was also wild and vicious and insecure, created havoc. And he is the main Herod in Matthew chapter 2, which we had read for us. Now he could put on his charming side. So we see that in the way in which he handles the wise men. He could also make himself seem religious. Remember he talked about wanting to go and worship the child as well. But his true colours come out in the dream which is revealed to Joseph in Matthew 2 and verse 13. Where it says, for Herod is about to, dis- is about to search for the child and to destroy him. Hence, they had to move on. And we see it, his true colours, in the actions that follow. When he realises that the wise men are not going to come back and tell him where the child is, they don't come back via the, the palace, Herod is furious. And he carries out tremendous evil and carnage in the district of Bethlehem. Verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So he fills his power and prestige are threatened by Jesus. Many do. As it says in the Simeon musical, if you've seen children play that out at school, he feels like there's another king on the block. And he can't cope with another king on the block. Even if it's the Messiah. Even if it's God's son. So he makes... A fierce attempt to eradicate the child. And in Herod's attempt we see really a bigger battle going on. A a spiritual battle depicted in Revelation 12, if you know anything about that chapter in the Bible. The devil is trying to get rid of the Messiah from the word go in this incident. But because of the dream given by the angel, because of the obedience of Joseph... The family uh, gets clear of Bethlehem, they head down to Egypt, it fulfills a prophecy, but also it gets them out of the clasp of Herod the Great, who wants to exterminate the line of the Messiah. 
And Jesus is there and he's safe and he's able to grow and he's able to develop. It's a bit like this, maybe the children can remember this. Sometimes you've seen these birthday cakes and the candle is on, the candles, according to how old you are, is on the cake and it comes out to you and say, blow the candles out and you blow the candles out. They all seem to go out and uh, perhaps there's a clap or whatever and then one by one, the candles come back alight again. Have you seen those? And you thought you'd got rid of them, but they come back up again. And Herod, and the dark side, if you like, seeking to get rid of the saviour, but the light is still going. They weren't able to achieve what they wanted. Devastating, yet defeated. Herod dies. It's time for Jesus to move back to his homeland, uh, but he doesn't go to the Jerusalem area because one of Herod's son has taken over there. And he's a, um, a bit like a, a chip off the, the old block. So Joseph and the family head to Galilee. And you don't hear much of that successor down in the Jerusalem area. In fact, he doesn't last that long. He lasts about ten years. He becomes unpopular, not just with the Jews, he even becomes unpopular with Rome. And Augustus, Emperor Augustus, banishes him off to France. Must have been easier to get into France then than it is nowadays. And we're going to move north, where we see our second Herod. Herod of Galilee. Herod of Galilee. That's what we're going to call him. Herod Antipas is his name. But I think we've got a better handle on it probably if we call him Herod of Galilee. So he's another of the sons of Herod the Great, Matthew 2.1, Herod Antipas. When Herod the Great died, his sort of domain was, if you like, divided up. And two of the sons got a quarter each. They were called tetrarchs, because they had a quarter of his patch. Luke's account tells us about them. Luke, always keen to be very clear on the historical accuracy and detail, says in Luke 3 verse 1, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis and Lysianus tetrarch of Abilene. He sets the scene. So there was a tetrarch in the north. Herod, Herod Antipas, we're calling him Herod of Galilee. And he's the main Herod that we come across in the rest of the Gospels. Okay, so if you're wondering who the Herod's being talked about, later on in any of the Gospels, it's likely to be this Herod, Herod of Galilee, Herod Antipas. And perhaps he's slightly milder than his father, uh, which isn't really hard. But his dark side comes out in the accounts that we we read. Jesus refers to him once as that fox. So perhaps he was deceitful, a wily operator. He certainly had a bad influence because... 
Jesus tells his disciples, do you remember this? This is on the boat and they were getting confused a bit about bread and so forth. Jesus tells them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. Bad influence permeating through. But there are two main things which we read about in the Gospels about this Herod of Galilee. Two main encounters, if you like, where we, 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 un- we unpack a bit more about him, but we see this main theme come through. The longest, uh, the first one, is to do with his encounter, if you like, with John the Baptist. And the longest account of this is in Mark 6. Mark 6 is the main chapter, it's in the other Gospels. Herod had embarked on a a wrong and compromised uh, marriage. John the Baptist, truth-telling John, made it clear what God's law said about the matter. This didn't go down very well with Herod, and it uh, certainly didn't go down with his new wife, Herodias. Well, as a result... Faithful John was put in prison. He was in chains. Then a a banquet, probably a drunken banquet, Herodias and her daughter scheme and they put pressure on Herod to reward them with the head of John the Baptist. Sad, isn't it, when our views and actions and attitude towards Jesus are chiefly pushed by the pressure of others who don't like him. Not a good position to be in, is it? So John the Baptist is executed. Herod of Galilee seemed to regret doing this, but he he doesn't have the courage to oppose this evil, wicked suggestion from his uh, new wife and the daughter. So, John the Baptist is no more and the sad disciples go and tell Jesus, we're told. Uh, The action seemed to leave Herod uh, with a nagging conscience. But it doesn't stop him in his wicked pursuits Because as he'd been involved with the killing of John the Baptist, so we read that also he wanted Jesus killed. This is the Fox reference, Luke 13, 31. At that very hour, some Pharisees come and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to him, go and tell that fox. We move on then to the second main encounter, which is Herod of Galilee with Pilate and Jesus, with Pilate and Jesus. So although Herod's patch is chiefly in the north, okay, it's the area of Galilee, he drifts south towards Jerusalem. I wonder if it was because of the Passover, but I haven't read that elsewhere, but I suspect that's probably why. He's drifted south for the Passover, so he's in the area of Jerusalem. And this is just at the time when the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, is questioning Jesus. 
It's likely to have taken place in this place. This is our second photo. Herod's Palace. This is a a big size model. I think you can just see some people up the top there, but a really big size model on the outside of Jerusalem, of uh, Jerusalem as it would have been in Jesus' day. And the red areas in the foreground are Herod's Palace, one of these big areas that Herod had built. Herod's palace, which had been built some decades ago, became the area that Pontius Pilate operated in when he was in Jerusalem. So it is likely that Jesus was being questioned, interrogated in that area of the model. So, Pilate is interrogating Jesus. And he decides it would be a good idea to get the opinion of Herod, since Herod is down in the area. And Herod is okay with that. He'd been rather hoping, in fact, to see Jesus himself. He was hoping that he might be impressed by some miracle from Jesus. In fact, the whole encounter proves a pretty big disappointment from Herod's point of view. Let's read the the verses in Luke 23. A few verses here where you'll see it described. Verse 6. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. Jesus kept quiet. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. What happens between the two? And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this they had been at enmity with each other. Sad, isn't it? If we only want dealings with Jesus, if he meets our demands, tickles our curiosities, presses our sensations, it runs no deeper than that. That was the case with Herod. So Herod joins in the mockery, he and his team. He's got no case to answer. He knows that Jesus has done nothing wrong. But he's seen as joining forces with Pilate at this stage. So much so that when the apostles are praying at a later point here in Acts 4, this is what they are heard praying in verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So, uh, again, it seems savage. Herod is involved with the whole scheme against Jesus and Jesus' execution. So he takes out the forerunner of Jesus, John the Baptist, despite being the great prophet, and he's concurring with the mistreatment of Jesus, the Saviour. 
And what does it all achieve? What does it all achieve? The prayer carries on. For truly in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predetermined to take place. So Herod was doing these savage things, these wrong things, these unjust things, but they realised that actually God's plan was being worked out. It's a bit like that in Acts 2 and verses 23 and 24, where Peter in his sermon at Pentecost says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So he, Jesus was wrongly dealt with and Herod was part of that. But it was overruled by God's plan. And in fact, Jesus was going to the cross to, to, to die on the, on the cross on behalf of the sins of millions of others. It was the masterstroke of God's plan in sending the Saviour. And after that, Peter says, he he was raised again. You see, the candle had been blown out, but now the candle is relit again. In fact, it's relit brighter because Jesus has died and risen again. And you have this devastating yet defeated, fierce yet failing, vain yet in vain theme running through the Saviour and the Herods. Well, now we move beyond uh, the Gospels to the early church in Acts. Um, There is a great-grandson of Herod. He is mentioned, he's not called a Herod, he's mentioned later in the book with Pomp and uh, with his wife Bernice. Uh, But he's not called Herod and... uh, I think three is enough for us to focus on. So we're going to focus on the other one in the book of Acts. Father, the one I've just mentioned. Who we're going to call Herod Anti-Gospel, just to try and keep it simple and clear in our minds. Herod the Great, son is then Herod of Galilee, and then the grandson, Herod Anti-Gospel. In fact, it's Herod Agrippa I. Now this Herod had been raised in Rome, And uh, then he had to leave Rome because his lifestyle was extravagant and reckless and debt-fueled. But because of some of these sort of overtures of his family, there seemed to be some degree of reconciliation with Rome and he was eventually given the title of Herod. He was Herod the Agrippa, Herod Agrippa I, Herod Anti-Gospel, we're calling him. Now we've seen the violence runs in this family and uh, the, this Herod carries out that sense of violence, especially towards the church towards the church of Jesus Christ. The battle continues, as the battle had been with the Saviour at birth, the battle had been Saviour through the prophet and at his time of question. So the battle carries on through his followers, through the church. Now, you remember James. Do you remember James, James the disciple? Brother of John. Together they were called the sons of For thunder, the sons of thunder. Well, Herod, this Herod, arrests James. 
and he has him executed. And it proves a popular move. So he plans to extend the program of persecution. We find out about this in Acts 12. That's our main chapter for this Herod, Acts 12. Let's read the first three verses. About that time, Herod the king, his third Herod, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Shockwaves going through the early church and their treatment. Peter is next on the hit list. The church prays a lot about Peter, despite the fact that he's in, if you like, high security prison. But by amazing act of God, you can read about it in the chapter, Peter is led out to escape. The family of foxes is outfoxed. But not only that, we see what happens to Herod by the end of the chapter in Acts chapter 12. Here we're, we're, we're probably here as we come to the end of Acts 12 in Caesarea. This is our photo of Caesarea and we're probably in this place here. So here we've got an amphitheatre at Caesarea and um, it's, um, it dates back to that time. Uh, there wouldn't have been chairs and, uh, and amplification system but um, it, it would have been there and this is the likely place because this is where it's based so this is the likely place where this occurs. The people of Tyre and Sidon uh, have fallen out with Herod. And they're trying to gain his favour again. They're wanting to praise him. And uh, in his pomp and glory, when he does his speech, wow, they're full of what he says. And uh, he doesn't return glory to God. He laps up undue praise for himself and he meets a sad end, and we read of it at the end of chapter 12. Let me pick it up in verse 21. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last sad goings on at the amphitheatre at Caesarea. Herod was ended. But what of the gospel that he'd been against? What of the gospel he'd trying to squash? Just the very next verse. But, verse 24, the word of God increased and multiplied. Gospel's going out. And in the very next verse after that, even though we're creeping into chapter 13 here, we have the gospel going out, not just around, but over into Europe through a mission excursion. And who is part of the team? 
Acts 13 verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius, Manian, lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. So there is there a group of people involved with the spread of the gospel out of them and part of the team is somebody who had been a friend of Herod. So, not only, if you like, is the candle relit, but it's as if there's lots more candles than were originally blown out. Devastating, yet defeated. Fierce, yet failing. Vain, but in vain. Now, I've got two closing thoughts for us to take with us uh, from this. First is this. God's Plans prevail. God's plans prevail. Did have opposition finally fails, but it didn't quite fit on the space I've got for it. God's plans prevail. It's probably a better way of putting it. It draws the attention to God, which is what we want this morning. A lot of opposition to God, to, to his son, uh, to his gospel. Sometimes that opposition seems to get the upper hand. It seems to have won the day, but it will finally fail. Christ has come to be victorious. For this purpose, Christ was revealed to destroy the works of the evil one. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, said Jesus. And the candle theme made me think of an incident in the UK history which... uh, brings out this point, which is why this road picture is on there. If I can put that up a bit bigger. This is part of a road. Perhaps some of you know which city it's in. It's in the city of Oxford. It's a cross in the middle of the road on Broad Street. And that cross is the, you can see it if you go to Oxford. Now that cross is... A little plaque at the side. You're better off looking at the plaque than spending too long in the middle of the road by the cross. But that place is where Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley uh, were killed for their faith in 1555 under Queen Mary's reign. Here's the details. On the 16th of October, 1555, just outside the walls of Belial College, Oxford, A stout stake had been driven into the ground with firewood piled high to the base. Two men were led out and fastened to the stake by a single chain bound around both their waists. The oldest man was Hugh Latimer, the Bishop of Worcester, one of the most powerful preachers of his day, and the other, Nicholas Ridley, the Bishop of London, respected as one of the finest theologians in England. More wood was carried and piled up around their feet. Then it was set alight. As the wood kindled up and the flames began to rise, Bishop Latimer encouraged his companion, Be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And in the years that follow, there was a a re-establishment, an advancement of biblical Christianity in our country, which spread far and wide. As well as the cross, there is a, a memorial just around the corner to it in Oxford. 
So, we can be heartened in times of difficulty, when the church feels small, when believers are pushed down, when secular liberalism seems to be prevailing and the church looks so weak and insignificant, when you and your own witness are struggling and your own church seems to be just uh, such a dim candle, we can be encouraged of the big plan of God, that God's plan will prevail, that devastating attacks will be defeated, that those who in vain go uh, uh, against God will prove to be in vain. God's purposes will prevail until that great day. And one final thought, just to, to, to leave with you, is this, on the winning side. In some ways, the Bible presents Herod and Jesus as sort of alternatives in in the book of Matthew at the start, you've got them as kings, really. So you've got King Herod, you've got King Jesus. You've got a choice of two, two families, two ways of life. The pompous, way of pomp, rather, the way of pomp, the way of prestige, the way of pride, a little bit of religious veneer and charm, deep-seated animosity, animosity to God underneath, no time for his Messiah on this side, and then here the genuine person who follows the Lord, who trusts, who has a fear of God, who's loving God's person. You've got these two alternatives. And one of the questions it leads us is, is which side are we on? Sometimes the Herod side looks the good side. It looks as though it's the victorious side. It looks as though it's the prevailing side. It's the stuff that's got the glamour. And sometimes the Jesus side looks as though it's downtrodden. Not up to much. But we're clear in every case who wins. And it points to the final triumph of the Lamb. So my last question for you this morning is which side are you on? side of Herod or are you a true genuine follower of God's son the Lord Jesus Christ the saviour and the Herods we're going to sing our closing song now which is the, the hymn I cannot tell and it tracks something of this theme where you have some of the lowliness of the Saviour, especially at the start, and then by the end of the song, the greatness and highness, the achievements of the Saviour in bringing people to follow him. I cannot tell why he who angels worship should set his love upon the sons of men.
Heavenly Father, we delight uh, to think of the final triumph of our Saviour. We're encouraged to think of the indestructibility of your purposes. We pray that we'll be filled with a sense of encouragement and blessing as we've contemplated these things this morning. Strengthen our allegiance and trust in the Saviour through what we have considered, we pray, as we ask in his name. Amen.